But again, thank you for the privilege of being with you. We will turn to Scripture this morning, and we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2. 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2. I've titled my message this morning, Loving One Another, Loving God's Word. Loving One Another, Loving God's Word. By way of introduction, I, I did not prepare, as Pastor said, to stand in a U.S. pulpit the first Sunday after a virus was declared to be a global pandemic and all the attendant uncertainty that comes along with that. This message was not written with that in mind. I actually wrote this message for our local church last year as we were there in Zambia as we were walking through a series that our pastor had called Marks of a Healthy Church Member. And we were looking at God's Word and how God's Word plays into the life of a church. And I was revising it and shaping it over the last couple of weeks, and I I gave your pastors this text for me to be preaching through today long before any of this. But then this past week, as all of us have watched the events unfold and the uncertainties arise, I I was fascinated. I, I feel a bit like an outsider watching much of what's going on take place but also convinced that this is a a very relevant and very appropriate text for us to walk through this morning. Um, And so we'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. So if you would read that with me as we open the Word of God, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 22. Peter writes, Having purified your souls, By your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. A text that we've already heard echoed this morning, verse 24. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Chapter 2, verse 1 continues. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. To give us a bit of the context of this passage that Peter is giving to his readers here, the book of First Peter is one of the few books not written to an individual local church. Peter writes the book of First Peter addressed to the church dispersed the dispersed believers across a large area of what's today Asia and Eastern Europe. And Peter writes addressing the theme of persecution, of opposition. But because he's addressing such a broad range of churches, not a single local church, he does not address in his letter necessarily a specific persecution or a specific kind of opposition. He writes to encourage struggling churches in times of uncertainty, in times of resistance, in times where their testimony must shine out in a world that does not believe the gospel. And I 
I see some echoes of our day and age today in the circumstances that Peter's readers also were facing in this time. Peter writes to encourage his readers towards the ideas of holiness and purity of walk in the face of opposition. And we'll be looking at some of those themes as we walk through. But here in this passage, Peter pauses and specifically focuses on a couple of ideas about God's Word and the implications and the power of God's Word in the lives of believers. And so we'll look at two specific commands that Peter has for his readers that address the the Word of God as it relates to the lives of believers as they live their lives in times of uncertainty in times of opposition, in times of resistance. Earlier in chapter 1, Peter has reminded his readers that their hope is to be fully fixed on Christ's future return. Their hope is not in the here and now. Their hope is in the eternal things to come at the return of Jesus Christ. But there is something for them in the here and now. Their faith must be tested to be genuine. So their focus must be on holiness and purity. And that leads us up to this section of Scripture where Peter turns his attention to talk about the Word of God and the implications of the Word of God in the lives of these believers. And as we walk through this text, I believe Peter's theme, Peter's core message, the idea that Peter had for those local churches and for us today as we are a part of the broader dispersion of the church almost 2,000 years later. Peter writes this, Because we have been saved through the power of God's word, we should be growing in personal purity and holiness, in inexplicable love for one another, and in an insatiable passion for tasting God's goodness through his word. Let me repeat that. Because we have been saved through the power of God's word, we should be growing in personal purity and holiness, in inexplicable love for one another, and in an insatiable passion for tasting God's goodness through his word. As I said, this this passage of scripture overlapping two chapters here is oriented around two key commands that Peter has for his listeners. And we'll look at each of these commands in turn. The, the final section of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, are oriented around the command to love one another. The core idea in this section is that God's abiding word is the life-giving, love-producing source of our salvation. Therefore, we are called to radical love. We'll look at the ideas as we walk through them. In verse 22, Peter introduces this idea. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, he's assuming this has already taken place, therefore, here's the command, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The command here in verse 22 is that we must love each other earnestly. We must love each other earnestly from a pure heart. 
But notice before Peter issues the command to love, and we'll unpack what that love looks like, how Peter describes that love, he assumes a certain shared experience of salvation. Having purified yourselves through obedience to the truth. Remember, we've already said one of Peter's core ideas is the twin ideas of holiness and purity. That idea weaves its way throughout Peter's epistle as he reminds these first century church members of the importance of a pure walk that is set aside, that is different, that is separate from the ways of the world. And Peter says, since we have had ourselves purified through obedience to the truth, that truth that he's referring to is what he's just talked about twice, actually. In 22 verses, already twice, there have been some great, almost hymn material about the value and nature of Christ's sacrifice. And Peter says, since we've experienced this sacrifice, since we've obeyed, this truth of the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We've been purified. But that purification is for something. We've experienced that purification through obedience to the truth for brotherly love. One of the core essential reasons why we have been saved is that we have been saved for the purpose of brotherly love. For a sincere brotherly love, in fact. Not just, hey brother, I love you. Pat on the back, hug. Oh, we're not allowed to hug right now. Uh, you know, fist bump, if we can even do that much. Uh, not that kind of brotherly love. A sincere, a genuine. In fact, in the original language, it's unhypocritical. We've been saved for the purpose of that kind of brotherly love. And obviously, if that's one of the purposes of our salvation, if that's one of the purposes of our shared purification, then Peter immediately follows up with the command. Therefore, you must love one another. And not just any kind of love. Again, the brotherly love that we've been saved for is unhypocritical, but the command to love that he give up, gives us is to love each other fervently or intensely. What does intense love look like? Well, I have a two-year-old daughter. I can give you a very easy picture of intense love. In fact, I could almost better illustrate with my eight-year-old son who's sitting here. Okay. When we came back to Zambia in 2017, he wasn't eight at the time, he was five. He hadn't seen his grandmother in three years. Of course, they came to the airport to meet us, naturally. A five-year-old boy, not a five-year-old grandmother, right? Okay. And the grandma bends down on one knee as the five-year-old son comes running out of the airplane gate in his intense fervor and passion for love, he bowls her over and knocks her down onto the ground. Grandma's laid flat on her back and there's a five-year-old grandson on top of her in the airport. That is intense love. 
Now, I'm not suggesting we do that today, but what does intense love for one another look like? Have you ever asked yourself that? We are literally being commanded, because of our shared experience of salvation, to love one another intensely, to love one another fervently, to love one another passionately. Because one of the primary purposes of our experience of purification and salvation is that kind of love. And I can't apply that to your life today. I don't know what it looks like for you to love one another intensely in this context in Burnsville. I know we are facing, as a society, unique opportunities to love one another in ways that perhaps for many of us are unprecedented. What will it look like for us, for you as Eden Baptist Church of Burnsville, to love one another intensely? I don't know. We're going to have to ask ourselves that. But as we walk through this, notice it's built on the, the core principle of the shared experience of salvation. We are capable of that kind of love, and we are called to that kind of love since you have purified your souls. Notice that this deep fellowship assumes a shared experience of salvation. I'm not naive enough to believe that every last one of us in this morning are believers. Now, if we came here in spite of the societal restrictions today, it's highly likely many of us are. But this kind of brotherly love is only possible if we have shared in the experience of salvation. And this is not a fire insurance type of salvation. That's not the kind of salvation Peter is talking about. This is a salvation that is oriented around personal purity and holiness. And if we have shared in that experience of salvation, there will be a natural love and a call to love that flows out of that. But what in the world makes that love possible? How can we love each other in such unusual ways? Well, Peter answers that in verse 23. He tells us the reason we are able, we are going to be able to love each other intensely is because there is a very unique power at work among us. He continues in verse 23. Since you have been born again, remember, there's the shared experience of salvation. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Peter tells us, yes, this kind of unusual love for one another is not possible without a unique power at work amongst us. But we have a unique power at work amongst us, and he calls it not perishable seed, but imperishable seed. And he connects this to the idea, again, of having been born again. Peter's idea here is that lavish love cannot come from us, but must be grown within us by God's word. Lavish love cannot come from us, but it must be grown within us by God's word. And again, he uses this metaphor of new birth and an imperishable seed that is planted in us leading to new birth. 
This idea of perishable already in 22 verses, we've heard repeated several times in the book of 1 Peter. In verse 4, he describes our inheritance that we get through the Holy Spirit as an imperishable inheritance. In verse 18, he tells us we've been redeemed, not through perishable riches like gold and silver, but from the inestimable sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So this metaphor of things that pass away, things that are temporal, things that live for but a while, compared with things that never die, has already been repeated several times in the letter. And here he applies the idea of perishable versus imperishable to a metaphor of a seed. And I want to be delicate here, but there's intentional um, double language or mixing of metaphors that Paul uses, excuse me, Peter uses here. He starts with the idea of seed that leads to birth and moves from there to talk about plants. Of course, in older English, we would use the same concept of seed in the same way. But here, Peter moves from birth and conception language to verse 24, where he begins to talk about plants and growth. But he's intentionally mixing his metaphors here. But this kind of seed that he's talking about is a seed that has been planted in us that leads to new birth. And what is that seed? It is the living and abiding Word of God. It is this seed that brings us new life. There's only one kind of seed. All seeds lead to temporary life in today's world. Even the great redwood tree that starts as such a small tree will eventually die. There's no seed that plants eternal life except for one, and that is the seed of God's Word. God's Word alone can give us radical new life that can grow radical love in our midst. And the reason God's Word can do that is he uses two terms, two familiar terms, to describe God's Word. It is living and it is abiding. It is living because it has life within itself, as all seeds do. All seeds carry life within themselves and bring about new life. That's what a seed does. But it is not just living, it is also abiding. It is permanent. It remains. And that is one of the essential concepts that is used to describe the nature of God's Word throughout all of Scripture. We hear this idea that God's Word remains. God's Word abides. And here again, we read that God's Word is the living and abiding Word of God. But in this context, it is able to give us new life, and it is able to give us a very specific kind of permanent, love-producing new life, because it has life within itself, and it is eternal. It is permanent. A, a, a New Testament echo of the similar idea can be found in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. I won't turn there. But there we read that God's Word is living and it is active. 
Of course, it's there used to describe as using the metaphor of a sword. Here it's used as the metaphor of a seed because it implants in us life that remains, life that never dies. And that is the unique source of power that can create this kind of love in our midst. And lastly, Peter moves from the metaphor of seeds that bring new life to now he's reminded of an Old Testament text and he actually quotes in verse 24 and 25, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. He writes, again quoting here, For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever. And then Peter adds his comment, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Again, reminded of the seed imagery, reminded of the permanence imagery. Peter quotes Isaiah to remind them, flesh is temporary. All flesh in our greatest glory is nothing but the flower of grass. the most incredible human achievements you can describe are fleeting and fading and temporal. And we see that played out on a grand scale this week and next week, and who knows what will happen in the weeks to come. Our greatest achievements can be knocked over like so many dominoes. And I appreciate Pastor's prayer this morning as we're reminded of God's sovereignty and of our frailty. That's what humans accomplish. That's what humans achieve. We are like so many blades of grass. One hot day, one drought, one virus. And we are swept away. But... Isaiah compares, the word of the Lord remains forever. Of all the impermanence, of all the temporality, of all the, dare I say, irrelevance of much of what goes on on the face of the earth today, there is one thing that abides and remains, and that is the word of God. And I love Peter's comment. I, I really used to struggle with the last verse here of First Peter. What, what does Peter mean when he says this final comment? It's kind of his interpretation of, of the quotation from Isaiah. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. It seems almost like an aside. Of course, we, we know that, Peter. That this is the gospel. It's using that same uh, terminology for the gospel that was given to us. It was proclaimed to us. Of course, we already knew that, Peter. But when you pause a moment to reflect on why Peter says that here, he's offering us proof of the power of God, of God's Word. The fact that this Word, that Word that abides and remains and has life within itself, is the very Word that was preached to us, implying that we received, remember that we have been purified by, that is the word that worked a change within us, 
Peter offers that as proof of the power of God's word. The the incontrovertible proof that God's word has power and remains is because we are believers. We were saved through the power of God's word. Peter writes, you want proof that God's word has power? You are it. This is the word that was preached to you. This is the gospel that you received. This is the thing that has life within itself. And you believers are living proof of the power of God's word. And so we circle back to the command. The reason Peter unpacks the power of God's word is because he is calling us to radical love. Unusual love. A love that cannot come from ourselves, but a love that must be grown within us through something that has power within itself. And Peter says the thing that has power within itself to work this kind of love in our midst is the word of God. This is the word that was preached to you. But he continues. Peter's on a roll. He's fired up about the value of God's word. And we know the chapter divisions weren't in the original text. They're there to help us find our place. And so he rolls right on with describing God's word in verse 1 of chapter 2. So, since you've been empowered by this incredible imperishable seed that has life within itself. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that God is good. I mentioned at the opening of the message, there are two commands that this text of Scripture is oriented around. And our English versions make it sound like verse 1 is the second command. Put away all malice. It is actually not the primary command in the second section. The primary command in the second section doesn't come until verse 2. Long for God's word. Long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow. That's the primary command. So what is Peter doing in in verse 1? Why does he start with this list of sins that must be put away? In fact, the structure of the text is actually very similar to the last section. In the last section, Peter said, Because you've been purified, love one another. In this section, he says, putting away these things, long for God's word. The structure is very similar. But why does he list these five sins? What is the the goal of reminding us of the need to put away these five sins? And why these five sins? There are many more sins that Peter could have chosen from. Why does he choose these? As we look through these specific verses, there's a very important relationship that Peter makes between putting away these five things and longing for. In other words, he's telling us that we cannot long for God's word if we have not first put away these specific sins. So how do these specific sins keep us from longing for God's word? Well, let's 
do the uncomfortable and unpack the five sins. Why these five? First, he lists malice. Malice is desiring evil or harm to come to another. Then he lists deceit. And we think of deceit as dishonesty, but in this context, it has more to do with actions rather than words. It's, it's dishonest treachery. It's sort of twisting the dagger, as it were. It's deceitful actions. And then he lists hypocrisy. Of course, we're all familiar with hypocrisy. It has the idea of having two faces. Your real face and the mask that you wear that you want people to believe you to be even though you aren't. It's desiring people to perceive you other than you really are. Then envy. Our old friend envy. Wanting someone else's blessing. And having ill will towards them as a result. And lastly, slander. Slander are words spoken with a desire to cut someone else down. You won't get ahead of me. I know exactly how to use my words to put myself ahead of you. And so why these five sins? Why must we, in order to long for God's word, which is the second command, why must we put aside malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander? And we were, when we reflect on the nature of these sins, these sins take root in the desires of our heart. In fact, these sins can sometimes be referred to as respectable sins, right? There are no respectable sins. But these are the sins you can easily get away with and still be a deacon, right? These are the sins you can, you can easily get away with and still teach Sunday school and still attend church every Sunday and still be a good, upstanding member of the community, but harbor malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander in our hearts. And so Peter pauses for a moment. Having reflected on the power of God's word to work such a change in ourselves and in our church, Peter says, so, putting away these sins that take root in the desires of our heart, we must long for, we must desire, we must thirst for pure spiritual milk. Peter is telling us if other desires have taken root in our heart and have led to these kinds of sins, there will be no room in our hearts to long for God's word. There won't. If we harbor acceptable sins in our hearts like envy and slander and hypocrisy, we won't be able to long for God's word. We must put them aside so that we can long for that which is pure, the Word of God. Peter is telling us we have an inescapable choice. If selfish desires crowd into our hearts and take first place, there will be no room for the kind of childlike desire that we truly need. Notice again the call for selflessness instead of selfishness in the pursuit of purity. And again, the, the word of God here is referred to as the pure milk, that same theme of purity that has been worked through 
the text already. A famous text of Scripture, excuse me, not text, this is the Scripture. A famous author, C.S. Lewis, has echoed the words of this Scripture when he wrote, It would seem then that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Peter is calling us to check our desires and not allow the desires of the heart motivated by sinful motives to take root and crowd out our ability to, the lo- to long for the things of God's word. And as we wrap up here, he, he describes how we must long for God's word in a unique way. I think in our Christian culture today, we, we read verse uh, 2 and 3 without the, the, the impact that it likely would have had on first century readers. He tells us, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Peter is calling us to be babies. I know we all we, we know the verse, we hear the comparison, and it kind of washes over us. But I'm sure in Peter's world, and I know today, it's not exactly a socially acceptable thing to go around calling people babies. Why would Peter use such a stark image to call us to desire something like a baby? And there are two important elements that Peter refers to or implies in his metaphor. How we ought to long for God's word. The first, of course, is the familiar one we've already mentioned. It's the idea of purity. He doesn't mention a two-year-old who's hungry and loses control. I want it now. I have a two-year-old. Okay, He talks about that newborn infant. I'm, I'm not making a theological statement about depravity. But that newborn infant has a purity and an innocence associated with it that we can all understand. Like newborn infants who want one thing and they want it now and they can think of nothing else except milk now! That's, there's a purity to that, but, but the second one I've just implied, and that's the idea of insatiable desire. Insatiable desire. You go get the finest steak from the most expensive restaurant in town and offer that to a six-week-old when they're crying. They want one thing. Nothing else will satisfy. Doesn't matter how much it costs. Doesn't matter where it came from. Doesn't matter how many... Credentials the person has who prepared it. They want one thing and they want it now. Insatiable desire. And that's what Peter is calling us to. That's the attitude Peter calls us to have towards the Word of God. We must have God's Word and we must have it now. Like newborn babies. Long for, crave, desire, earnestly seek out the pure spiritual milk of the word that by it we may grow. Because remember, he's just described for us its power. 
that it alone is permanent and has life in itself. And then he ends with with kind of a verbal challenge in verse 3. Almost a repartee. If indeed you really have tasted that God is good or tasted God's goodness. He ends with this challenge. Have you really? Have you really tasted God's goodness? Have you really experienced how good he is? Because if you have, you'll be satisfied by nothing else. And Peter lays before us the same challenge. As we reflect on God's word, three three applications here very briefly as we wrap up. This text clearly is a call to personal holiness, especially as we read it in the light of its broader context. Peter is talking to people who live in a world full of opposition, facing difficult circumstances. And the answer is to keep the main thing the main thing. Our faith will be tested. In fact, earlier in the chapter, he says our faith must be tested. Our focus should be on personal holiness and purity. But, but, this is not the purity of isolationism and self-quarantine for its own sake. And I want to be careful. There are absolutely appropriate self-quarantine measures that are taken in the interest of others. But there are also, as I've watched society around us buy up all the toilet paper, There are also self-preservationist, isolationist instincts that well up within our hearts. And I think we as Christians face the same temptation. I will be pure at any cost. I will be pure even if it means I can't associate with that church and I can't associate with those people and that family member definitely not because you know they do that. Peter calls us to purity and holiness, but a purity and holiness that drive us together, that drive us towards each other. It is a purity and holiness out of which love flows, not out of which selfishness flows. So he's calling us to a specific attitude of purity and holiness. It is a purity that drives us into deep and meaningful relationships with fellow believers flowing out of a powerful, word-produced love. First application. Second, what we've already mentioned, radical love for one another. Who are you loving intensely? Who are you loving intensely? deeply and meaningfully and sacrificially. Because God's word is able to produce that love within us. In fact, it is one of the purposes of our salvation to love each other unhypocritically and intensely. And that's, I think, a real challenge for each of us. What does unhypocritical love look like for me and the person sitting next to me, the person sitting behind me, my neighbor, my difficult family member. What does unhypocritical love, fervent, intense, practical love look like? Ah, that one's impossible. Yes, we're all impossible, but God's word has power within it that makes it possible. And lastly, loving for and longing for, 
love for, and longing for God's word together. We're here this morning to hear the word of God preached. I have the great privilege to stand in front of students in Zambia and talk about the centrality of the word of God. And you partner with us to do that, and we're grateful. But I think the longer we are Christians, the less passion we're inclined to have for God's word, the less longing, the less desire. In this passage, Peter uses the the metaphor of a baby longing for milk. I know in Hebrews, that metaphor gets extended to talk about meat. there's, There's a place for that, to grow in our faith. But Peter says the word is always the one thing, the one essential, non-negotiable thing for our spiritual life. In our lives today, we can replace God's word with good things like podcasts and books and Sunday school classes. Yes, they're all about God's word. But do you long for this? Do you thirst for the pure spiritual milk? Or can you go weeks without opening the pages of Scripture? That baby's not going weeks. That baby's not going hours without mama's milk. Can you go days without the pure spiritual milk of the word? Peter calls us to check our desires. Has something else crowded out my desire? Has some other sinful, selfish desire taken root in my heart? Or do I long for the pure spiritual milk of the word? Peter reminds us in this text, because we have been saved through the power of God's word, we should be growing in personal purity and holiness, in inexplicable love for one another, and in an insatiable passion for tasting God's goodness through his word. In these times of uncertainty, in these times of global chaos, may we be reminded of the main thing. And may we be drawn back to the power of God's word to cause us to live lives that are different than the people around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we are grateful for your word. Above all things, we have heard your word exalted in this text. In the pages of scripture, we meet the person of Jesus Christ, whom to know is life eternal. In the pages of Scripture, there is life that can be shared through the truths that are written therein, through your divine revelation. You have shown us yourself, and apart from your word, we would not know you. And so we ask for conviction to hear these two challenges, these two commands. Number one, to love each other passionately and earnestly. May Eden Baptist Church of Burnsville be a church that is known for its passionate love of one another and for their community. And Lord, may we as individuals have a passion for your word and a hunger and thirst that can be satisfied by nothing else. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for this church, Lord. We ask for your hand of blessing on it as they navigate through this time together as a body. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.